God is letting Satan do horrible things so that people will freak out. So that they will let go of anything they thought was gonna bring them hope or security other than Christ. We've got to cling to Christ and he's our only answer. And the sooner we get that and live that way, the better. Today on In Grace, we're in Jerusalem to talk to Joel Rosenberg and get a Mideast update. Hey, Joel, good to have you back on In Grace. Good to have you back here in yeah. Israel, too. And in Jerusalem, what a view, what a view. Amazing. And you get to live here. 15 minutes from here. <laughs> Speaking of 15, it's been 15 months since we've sat down and talked with you on In Grace. Yeah. How much has changed in the world in the last 15 months? Well, we've had a few birth pangs. <laughs> um, you know, it's still striking to me to live in an era not only where end times Bible prophecies coming true, the fact that Israel exists, the Jews are streaming back into the land, my, my own family included, um, rebuilding the ancient ruins, making the desert bloom, right? We know that, um, but when you see the wars and the rumors of wars, and then you see the pandemic, I mean, you're talking about almost 7 million people uh, died worldwide, and uh, that's just extraordinary. We've never seen anything quite like that in the last hundred years. So to me, it's one more of the birth pangs. Then you've got the largest land war in Europe since World War II. Uh, so many people didn't believe that Russia would really invade. Uh, I know many Ukrainian families who just uh, who live here, they're Israelis, but they told their kids, no, don't worry. I mean, this is just, it's just huffing and puffing, but they're not, it's not obviously crazy enough to, to invade Ukraine, um, but, but Putin was. And so these are huge, um, uh, to me, it, it's, it's just obvious that these are birth pangs. These are not normal, this has not been a normal, you know, last couple of years. But I also think that church is going through a, uh, um, a, a terrible birth pang as well. I really see people blowing up. I see friends in ministry or who've been believers for many years ditching their families, um, blowing themselves up. And you're like, what are you doing? What? I mean, you shouldn't do it anyway, but given how late in the game we are, it's like, it's like uh, you know, blowing yourself up at the two minute warning mark at the end of the Super Bowl and you're winning. Uh, I mean, you're gonna win, right? It doesn't always feel like we're winning. This is this is very painful to me. I, and 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 COVID, the, that whole period. I think it, you know, not just you know in the United States, all over the world, but certainly here, it put enormous pressure on the churches. Mm -hmm. um, and we saw people just never come back. But we also saw people come back to congregations that never came to congregation before. Either they were believers, but they didn't have fellowship. They didn't want it before. Now they knew they needed it. Uh, in, a, in a fresh way, or they just had never known the Lord, and now they did. And so um, God's sovereignly working, but it's been a painful, painful, exhausting, I would say excruciating few years, and I don't see it letting up anytime soon. I, it, I you know, birth pangs have a release time, but uh, I'm not sure that we're in it right now. Well, you've covered quite a few things, so let's go back through some of those and talk about them. So again, 15 months ago, it was around November of 2021, which we last sat down and talked. And uh, the pandemic was kind of over, but it really wasn't, you know. 
and it seems like finally things are back to normal. Yeah. Uh, we have a, a tour group here in Israel, and yeah, we had yeah. about 120 people that wanted to come to Israel, and it seems like tourism is back. Yes. All of the sites are full, yeah. uh, and that's kind of a little bit of a pain, but I'm happy for Israel. Uh, no, right? no, it's good. It, admittedly, for the couple years where nobody came, it was horrible for our economy, and it's very sad for ministry, but... On the other hand, it was sort of like living in Disney World in the Magic Kingdom and there was nobody going on the rides, right? So you had, the, yeah. the traffic was better. And anyway, but no, it was a, it was a bad time all the right. way around. We're so, glad to have you guys Yeah, back. so, and, and, but the pandemic, let's talk about that because not only all the people that got sick and died and that's awful, but we also saw a lot of uh, countries really like cracking down on citizens and restrictions. And it, it seemed to me like the whole world was doing this and that seemed unprecedented. Like that's never happened before. Did, did that feel a, like a taste of what's to come with, you know, with, with our view of Bible prophecy and the end times and a world leader that's going to control the whole world and no one can buy or sell without his mark of loyalty? Um, it it kind of seemed a little bit to me like some pieces of that coming together in a worldwide scale. We would say in Hebrew, mea achuz, 100%. Yes, it's not a taste, it's it's a preparation. I would say there's been two moments in the last 25 years or so, a little bit less, that have really prepared us for that real end times, you know, tribulation era. First is 9-11. That catastrophe set into motion the surveillance state and the level of security that, you know, you used to be, you could go see a friend right up to the gate to say goodbye or say hello to somebody. Now that level of security and all the terror watch lists and all that, we had to do it, right? I think we, I think we thought in Bible prophecy from people thought over the many hundreds of years, certainly over the last hundred years, that all this would seem evil. But I think when you think of the security to protect yourself from terrorists, you think, well, that's cumbersome and it's expensive, but we certainly have to do it, right? But, and all the facial technology and all the rest of that, that all comes, that's all out of 9-11. Now you add this, I, I'm not sure that any of us, even those of us who teach on Bible prophecy, foresaw how rapidly 100% of the governments in the world would tell you you can't leave your house, that you cannot go to church, that you cannot buy or sell um, except in you know at this certain moment on this certain situation, and it just shows that the the mechanisms yeah. for all the things that the that you know prophecy tells us are all being set into place, and uh, it's not we're not supposed to be unnerved, but it can be unnerving. Mm -hmm. It's like certainly stunning, mm -hmm. and yet other people, it's caused them to to they're going too many believers right now. I think this is the other implication of it is. Um, I think we are, they are going into, they are trying to anesthetize themselves. They're trying to medicate. Uh, it may be drugs and it may be alcohol, but it may be Netflix binge watching. It may be whatever. It, it, but people are so exhausted by what's happened that if they're not spiritually healthy, they are trying to just not pay attention. And I think this is where we're seeing people blow up their marriages, their, their you know, abuse of children, of just all the other things, the apostasy that we see mm -hmm. that the Bible says is going to happen um, is rampant. And it's and people's love growing cold for one another, right? We expect the world's love to grow cold for each other, right? We're not really 
surprised when the Kardashians or whatever blow up. But when, but when our pastors and our ministry leaders and our worship leaders and just our friends in our Bible study decide to like pull the pin on their own lives and blow themselves up because they think it's going to be better, you're like, what planet are you on? I thought I knew you. Apparently, I don't. Mm-hmm. This is... This is tragic, and it made and it adds to the level of exhaustion and pain the reasonably healthy church is going through right now. Yeah. But it's a weeding out process. We also talked about Russia, and it was before the invasion. Yeah. And now it's been a year uh, since Russia has invaded Ukraine. I'm not sure what I told you. Are well, you I'm trying about to, think, to roll in some yeah, clip. That I'm you're trying like, to think. Oh, back. it'll never happen. <laughs> no, I think I think you're on the side of no. He's you know this is serious because you had just written the book Enemies and Allies, and a big part of that book was warning the world, especially evangelical Christians, about who Vladimir Putin really yeah. was, and so maybe go through that where. Where are we at today with that? And where do you think this is all going to go? How much time did you say we had in the show? Uh, okay, so yes, Enemies and Allies, uh, as a nonfiction book, uh, you know, I spent several chapters just unpacking who is Vladimir Putin because my view prior to the invasion roughly a year ago um, by Russia into Ukraine was that people weren't really taking Vladimir Putin seriously. And I'm like, I really was struggling to comprehend why not. The good news, it's a horrible disaster. Uh, We're talking about like 300,000 people dead, 14 million uh, displaced, um, Putin threatening, openly threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield. And as of you and I recording this, he hasn't, but I... I would say it's a better than 60-40 chance that he does. Mm. Uh, I pray that he doesn't, but I think he's losing. Putin is being humiliated. And humiliate I don't know what the Russian word for humiliation is, but I don't think it's in his vocabulary. He has been, you know, the super strong man, the super authoritarian, totalitarian dictator in Russia, and nobody crosses him. But now he knows that generals have been lying to him about the readiness of the forces. And he is a racist about Ukraine. You know, it's ours and you're all a bunch of idiot morons and we're just going to come and get you because we deserve it. And now he's being humiliated. So my concern is that he goes nuclear, not because that necessarily makes it a win, but just to freak everybody out. Because if he doesn't, how, how does he re-inject, how does, A, how does he win? And B, how does he re-inject fear? That's how he governs. That's how he rules. It's not governing. It's ruling. Sure. Um, sure. He rules with an iron fist and, 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 a, and a reign of terror. But he's been unmasked. The good news is, as slow as the world was to go, what? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you saw people pulling their investments out, McDonald's closing, you know, uh, uh, movies not opening there. I was surprised to see and heartened mm-hmm. the reaction. It's been slow to arm Ukraine and even Israel has struggled because we don't want to draw the wrath of the bear. Hey, come south, right? Because then we're heading into Ezekiel 38, 39 territory, the War of Gog and Magog. So anyway, all that to say, um, it's been a horror show, but the benefit is Putin has been unmasked. Yeah. Well, tactical nuclear weapons, if, if that does happen, and I hope you didn't just predict that, um, it what would happen then? I mean, the West has to respond 
How the, how's the West going to respond? <clears throat> Use two nuclear weapons against him? My theory is, and, and this goes back, actually, I should say, so uh, before Enemies and Allies several years ago was a novel called The Kremlin Conspiracy. And in that, a Russian dictator rises to power and he tells his advisors, I want to either invade the Baltic countries, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, or Ukraine. And they're like, um... Bad idea. Well, you know, they can't really say that to him. So they're well, um, Mr. President, if you really want to do that, we recommend Ukraine, uh, even though they're they're tough customers, but um, they don't have a they're not part of NATO. But the Baltics are NATO countries. That means they're Article Five countries. Meaning, if you invade one of them, you bring the entire wrath of NATO upon you. And and, and in the novel, okay, still we're working with fiction. The the fictional president, Alexander Luganov, he says, do you really think that the United States, Britain, France, Germany, they're going to go to nuclear war with me, which is the only way they'd be able to get me out of there. I could, I could grab Estonia in 96 hours. So I go, I grab it, I hold. What are they going to do? They're going to go to nuclear war? Of course, they're gonna, Americans don't even know where Estonia is. So, and then if they don't trigger Article 5, then that's the end of NATO. You can't have an alliance based on a mutual, uh, you know, a treaty of we'll all come to each other's defense if nobody defends you. That's it. I could have, I could trigger the end of NATO in 96 hours. This is the, this is the premise of the Kremlin conspiracy, which I happen to be teaching on, speaking about in Estonia, in the capital of Estonia, in the largest church in Estonia, in the capital of Tallinn, a week before the invasion. And everybody there was like, Joel, you're, you seem like a nice guy, but you're crazy. He's never going to invade. Don't you understand? I'm like, don't you understand? You've been invaded. You were occupied for 40 some years, 70, 70 some years. How do you not see this? So, but I think, yeah, so I, I, I don't think the United States would, I mean, what, what could the United States do? I, I, I don't see any support. And then the world change it. Now the worst dictator in the, in the world who is losing, suddenly, what's the next target? Because who's going to stop him? And, and, and if, he's t if he's teaming up with China, like Mike Pompeo was just on my show, the former CIA director, former Secretary of State, a reader of my novels, which is fun. And he, he, he told me on the TBN show, uh, the Rosenberg Report, that uh, Xi Jinping, the leader of China, he's the most dangerous man in the world. That's because of what he could do. That, he, that in the next couple of years, while Biden is still in power, completely weak, Putin's been the first guy out of the gate, first evil dictator to go, I want something, now's the time to get it. Putin didn't invade anybody when Trump was in power. Right. Whatever you think about Trump, Putin didn't invade anybody. He did during Obama, he did during George W. Bush, didn't during Trump, has done it during Biden. So, there, who are the other powers? Iran is thinking, well, if we were ever going to go break out and go get the bomb, maybe these next two years, maybe that's the window. They just said they're going to enrich to 84%. Yeah. That's just shy of military nuclear weapons grade uranium. And then you got China thinking, well, we want Taiwan. Maybe we have a two-year window. Hmm. Maybe this is the moment. Now they're seeing Putin losing in Ukraine, so that's got to cause them to hedge a little bit. But, Jim, what my point is, this is... Biden's surrender in Afghanistan and his slow response in Ukraine has created an open field for every bad guy in the world to go, maybe, 
maybe the Republicans are coming back or, or a Democrat who is coherent in national security. But as long as we have this window, what should we go get that we currently don't have? It's a well, terrifying window. It is. Yeah. And it's almost like this is a catalyst that can lead to just awful things. But the Bible does predict awful things are coming. Yeah, unfortunately, so, that is true. You know, um, people cry for peace and there is no peace. Right. Okay, you mentioned um, some different uh, American political uh, figures. Of course, our current president, Joe Biden. But also, you mentioned Mike, Mike Pompeo. Um, let's just ask you about the, the election. You okay. know, there will be a, a Republican primary within a year or so. And there are people that have already declared, including President Trump, Nikki right. Haley. And there's others that probably will run, including Mike Pompeo and um, Mike Pence. So yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe go through um, some of those individuals in the Republican primary and give me your you know, 30 second assessment of each of them. And okay. you're the you, first person that's asked feel. me this. It, it's, it is early, but it's not early. Like, it's really like, not. I think no. people, are, people who are seeing how much the country's in trouble because of just, just two years of Biden are really worried. And they expected a Republican you know, tsunami, a red tsunami, last November and, and, and they didn't get it. So now, and you know what, people must be really concerned if they're asking me from all the way over here. But, okay, uh, Donald Trump. I love the guy, he's incredible. He did, nobody was more pro-Israel than Donald Trump. Okay, so that's good. Um, I don't think he can win in 2024. He has disaffected so many Republicans. I'm not even talking about Democrats and independents. I'm saying the split in the party is so deep now because of January 6th. Yeah. He had, like, like, I wasn't always a fan of the tweeting and Correct. paying off of the porn star. And, the, you know, there was a number of things I was like, yeah. but compared to Hillary Clinton, I didn't have any issue with that. Like, okay. And he's delivering for evangelicals, like, off the charts. Mm -hmm. Most pro Israel president in history and the most pro-life president. And he was a guy who was for partial birth abortion in the 90s. So True. what a conversion, right? Yeah. So it was phenomenal. But he basically imploded mm. on January 6th or leading up to in that day. And that, that's sad because his record was so good that if he just said, they took the election from me, but I'm coming back. Yeah. He would have had the, United, the, the Republican Party unify behind him and you know, I think he would have had a clear shot. Now, I don't think he can win the general election. He could still win the, 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 the primary. So that's Trump. That was in 30 seconds. Sorry. <laughs> um, let's go on. Uh, who's declared? Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, super pro-Israel. I think she got out of the uh, Trump administration too early. I think she bailed. Uh, I, I can say from reading Mike Pompeo's book, boy, there's only two people that he blisters and he really goes... Bolton, he calls a, John Bolton, former national security advisor, he calls a traitor. Yeah. And uh, Nikki Haley's like, yeah, she had a small little job and then she didn't think that was worth it to, you know, fight for f full four years. That's a, that's a case that could stick. On the other hand, she's a very attractive candidate. I don't mean, you know, physically, I'm, I'm talking about, she has a very compelling personal story. She, uh, she was a governor, you know, twice elected, didn't fill out, fill out the full term because, uh, the second term because she became the ambassador to the UN. UN. Um, she doesn't have a lot of national security chops, so that's going to be a thing in a world of China and Russia. Um, but she's got a great story, and she's, a, she's an excellent communicator, and she loves Israel. So on the Israel side, so far, we're good. Trump, good. Um, Haley, good. Um, Mike Pence, I think, is the next one you have to take seriously, because even though Trump went after him, um, he went after him on, the, on, on a one position 
that any vice president, any any political leader in, on the conservative side w- would want to be attacked on. You're, you're saying I wasn't strong enough in standing on the Constitution. <laughs> like I was on that ticket too. If 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 it was just as easy as saying oh, we're the winners, then then Pence would be in. And, and I think the problem with Trump's logic on this, and where where Pence is right. I mean, that may not be. I don't know your your viewers, so they may hate me for this, but. Pence was right. He didn't have any constitutional authority to just say, you know, no, I, I decertify these right. electors. It's just, yeah. And if he does, if he did, then did Al Gore have the same authority in 2000 when George W. Bush won by, what, 575 votes or whatever it was in Florida? Al Gore was the vice president. Could he go, nope, it's me? Nobody on the Republican, conservative, evangelical side believes that. So... If Gore didn't have that authority, why did Pence? Because maybe we wanted him to be able to say it, but he stood on the, con- constitu- the Constitution and it cost him. But it also defined him mm-hmm. as a man of faith and a man of principle, a man willing to fight even if it was at his own personal expense. That's pretty impressive as a believer. It's pretty impressive in politics. You usually don't see that. So, And he has a national organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not the most exciting candidate in the race, right? So if he if he gets in, um, Pompeo is a very impressive guy, um, as impressive as Pence. But he but Pence has an advantage over Pompeo. Why? Well, not just because they have the same name, Mike. So that doesn't mean, <laughs> and their both last names start with a P. So that's they're similar. But um, Pompeo is from a small congressional district in Kansas. Um, so. And then he became CIA director, and he was probably the best CIA director we've ever had, um, but nobody knew what he was doing, right, because it was all secret, right? He, ma- he gave me some great ideas for novels along the way, decla- you know, unclassified. But, um, and then he became secretary of state, where 90% of his time was outside of the country. So the people that know Mike Pompeo have watched him are super impressed. Every time I go to an event and he's speaking, people go, man, I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. Super smart. Strong Christian, you know, taught fifth grade and then decided to go to Congress. And fifth grade was easier. But um, he doesn't have a national organization. So what he would need if he gets in, and I think this is, I think is a challenge for him, is he'll need a group of billionaires and gazillionaires who decide they're going to create a, you know, $200 million super PAC to get behind him. Because I don't see how he builds a national organization in time. And he's great, but he doesn't have the winsome personality. He's not sort of like Pence. He's he's a Midwestern nice guy, strong, but not flashy, not sort of, you know. So Nikki Haley has the jump on them. And, of course, Trump, Trump obviously, most charismatic of all. Tim Scott, very interesting. Uh, we, as we tape this, I just saw Shannon Bream's interview with Tim Scott, uh, who I love, Tim Scott. Um, and uh, only African-American in the United States Senate, South Carolina, raised by, you know, a poor single mom. His story is so awesome. A strong believer, not married, so we've never really had that, but he's going to be, if he really gets in, he's going to be a fascinating guy to pay attention to, and um, I think uh, I think he could do well even without a national organization, but in the end, why did Nikki Haley get out early to build a national organization? Now, there's others, but let me mention the big kahuna, which Ron would be DeSantis. Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Ron DeSantis fascinates me. Haven't met him. I've met all of the rest. Well, I haven't met Nikki. 
Um, very short on Ron DeSantis. He's the one that's showing people are moving to him. He's been an incredible governor. I mean, he took, I mean, Florida, we just mentioned George W. Bush winning by, you know, less than 600 votes 20 years ago, 23 years ago. He, DeSantis wins by 19. He has ta he's taken a, a, a purple state, right, a mixed red-blue, and turned it bright red. Like, how is that even possible? I don't know. <laughs> I know that I had a son in college who moved to, ch who changed college to be in Florida because mm. he saw DeSantis as the leader of freedom, especially during COVID. Sure. Very impressive. The, the question about DeSantis right now is, is he Rick Perry? Now, I like Rick Perry, who is the governor of Texas. Uh, he's a, Rick Perry's a reader of some of my novels, so I'm very happy about that. But Rick Perry was a great governor of Texas, but when he entered the Republican uh, race in 2016, his no numbers were very high, but they sank. He didn't know how to translate statewide politics onto the national scene, and he stumbled, sure. and people, people bailed on him. Mm -hmm. Could DeSantis do the same? We don't know, right? Um, but, he, but DeSantis was also a congressman, so he, he, he knows national politics. Is he ready for the rough and tumble? Is he ready to go mano a mano with Trump? It's, I, I don't know, but it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, and it seems like he's um, doing a little bit of that already. Uh, okay, so that's America, and that does influence <laughs> the Middle East in a big way, yeah. like we've already talked about Iran, Russia, uh, Syria, all of these uh, hotbeds. The, the stronger the leader in America is, uh, the better for Israel, too. Amen. Okay, so Israel. <laughs> uh, the last time we were sitting together, uh, you told me that Netanyahu wasn't finished. It almost looked like he was washed up. You were kind of saying, you know, I, I think he's going to be up and coming. And here we sit. Uh, the prime minister, again, is yeah. Benjamin Netanyahu. I've just finished his book, mm. uh, BB My Story. Yeah, very, very impressed with yeah. his book as well and his life and his, you know, his family's history in yeah. making this a nation. So what's happening right now, and I know we just have a couple of minutes, but Give me kind of what's going on. And I know there's protests and they're trying to- Huge protests. You know, Actually, change the historic constitution. protests. Right. Last week, uh, last Saturday, just before you got here, 300,000 Israelis turning out on the streets all over the country to protest where Netanyahu is going. Why? The, the main issue is, Netanyahu ran on three main issues. I'm gonna stop Iran from getting the bomb. I'm gonna make peace with Saudi Arabia. And I'm gonna continue to develop and expand the booming Israeli economies so it it's a benefit for everybody. Great. That was a very unifying message. And after four previous elections, he finally won and pulled everyone together in the fifth election to put a government together. He is the comeback kid. I may have used the line with you at the time. Uh, don't count him out. He's a shrewd political cat. Mm -hmm. And I don't think his nine lives are up. And sure enough, they're not. But the issue that was number four on his list, he didn't, didn't talk about it that much, was judicial reform. And that issue is the issue that he's driving first. And let me put it in context. So his argument is that the Supreme Court here is left wing and completely out of control. And unlike the United States, the prime minister doesn't get to appoint no Supreme Court yeah. justices. Um, basically, the Supreme Court justices appoint themselves as the next, find a next person that's sort of like them. Uh, that's a problem. Also, the Supreme Court keeps striking down laws that he has passed over the years, or even appointments. He appointed a deputy prime minister. And the Supreme Court a few weeks ago said, that's 
unreasonable in the extreme and, and said the guy can't serve. Now, I agree with them. This guy, he, he was a two-time convicted criminal. Uh, an embezzler who was going to become the finance minister. Like, that's, uh, that's a bad idea. So I don't think Bibi should have appointed this guy. Arya Derry is his name, ultra-Orthodox religious guy. But I don't think the Supreme Court has a legal right to tell a prime minister who's elected who he wants. Like, that's a political decision. Sure. Bibi might be wrong about it, but that doesn't mean he, it's, he's doing something illegal. Do you think that he's going to get the, the, the legislation he wants? Bias? I hope not, because what I hope is that there's a compromise. Okay. For example, so I'm saying here's on the BB Pro side for this legislation, yeah, you, that's not right. The Supreme Court has to be reined in. It has to have checks and balances. But on the other side, the legislation says that the legislature, the Knesset, can overturn a Supreme Court decision by 51% of the, of the legislature. What? Like, then there isn't a Supreme Court. Like, sure. what's the point? Right. If, if, if they say, you know, I'm not saying they would, but let's say they say uh, Christians can't go to church. And people are like, and then the Supreme Court says, that, no, that's a fundamental violation of religious freedom. But 51 people or 51% goes, no, that sounds good to us. That's not right. That is not protective. It's it be needs to be a supermajority, in my view. Okay. Like it is in the United States. Sure. If the Supreme Court does something, Roe v. Wade, if, you know, you have to either change the nature of the court, which took a long time, which, but here you can't do that, mm -hmm. or you have to have enough people in the Congress to pass a law overriding the decision. But it can't be 51%, right? right? So they, the, the Netanyahu's team needs to come up. And the other side maybe needs to come down a little bit, but it can't be the way it is. And that's probably a negotiating position anyway. It would, but nobody's negotiating. Oh, right. So, so that's, that's okay. so people are scared, and that's why they're turning out on the streets. Right. Like they're afraid that fundamental civil rights, human rights, whatever, will be overturned, and then you're at the, and then it's the tyranny of the majority, and that you know this is a this is a robust democracy, right? We had five elections in four years. This is robust, right? They let me come. I'm a Jewish person who believes in Jesus and thinks everyone should believe in Jesus. That's not because everybody here loves this position. It's because it's a free country and I played by the rules and, I, and the rules said I could come mm -hmm. and my family. So that's an impressive democracy. Yeah. I don't want to see that unraveled. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think he's trying, I don't think Bibi is trying to unravel it, but some of his team are going too far and it's his job to be the adult in the room. And so we need to pray uh, for the, pre uh, the prime minister to know how to navigate this and to bring it to a point where there's unity. And I think there can be, I think there has to be. Yeah. The courts are out of control, but they've got to find a better reform package than this. So we have Benjamin Netanyahu and some challenges that he has, but one of them, Iran, of course. Yeah. Is Israel safer today though? Uh, with him and his government because they really, they're, they're right wing, but that means conservative and they're definitely going to be stronger on protecting Israel. Is Israel safer with him as the prime minister? Absolutely. Uh, Netanyahu has been dealing with Iran for 30 years, right? He wasn't prime minister for all of that, but he's the longest serving prime minister in the history of the country. He was a special forces commando uh, with the most elite unit in Israel. He's been wounded multiple times in battle. You know, his brother gave his life for the country. Uh, this, is, this is one of the founding families of the country. And he understands military uh, battle. But because his brother 
his older brother was killed, he also knows the pain that every Israeli family feels if they lose one of their loved you know, ones, one of their son, a daughter, a father. So he's, he's very careful. One of the things he's done over the years is use anything but what would be called kinetic warfare, going all out into obvious war, dropping bombs, you know, using special forces, using intelligence, using cyber warfare to slow Iran down. But if we have to go into a full-on war because Biden doesn't get it and, and Iran's at 84% and no one else will do anything, do Israelis trust Bibi at the helm? Absolutely. And if they didn't, then somebody else would be the prime minister. Everybody knows that that's our biggest issue that we're facing. And that's also why they're frustrated with this judicial reform, because they feel like there's such unity on the big issues. Why are we dealing with? But this is judicial reform is a big issue. But my point is, yes, I feel safer. I would say almost every Israeli feels safer. Even the people that disagree with Bibi, <laughs> I think, sure. feel safer with his hand on the button, as it were. Yeah. You know? and, he, and he does know. Um, all of these issues very, he knows very this, well. Right. Yeah. He knows this brief. It's yeah. not new. Um, you know, when Yair Lapid, who I know, I like, but, you know, he, he, yeah, he served in the military as a journalist. I'm, I'm a journalist. I, you know, I, I'm, I didn't serve in the Israeli military, so, I, you know, I'm not, you could say I, I'm not one to speak. But, but people know the difference between somebody who served in combat and special forces understands it all better. Absolutely. And while they liked Lapid on a lot of domestic issues, I don't think there was a great deal of reservoir of trust that if we have to go to war with Iran, that, that guy knows what to do. Benny Gantz um, was, you know, four-star general, was uh, defense minister, was the chief of staff of the Israeli army. Not the most charismatic. I know him. Again, also, I like him. I know all these guys, but I'm just saying, do, would we trust Benny Gantz to take us to war? Yes. Would we trust Benny Gantz to know how to explain it to the rest of the world? Not as much as Bibi, right? So the, Bibi has a unique combination of having the military strategy, 30 years of experience, and he's the best ambassador for the whole country. He knows, and he can get, you know, Putin on the phone. He can get, you know, Biden on the phone. He's known these guys for a long time. And that is an asset. Bibi Netanyahu is a world leader of a tiny country, 10 million people, right? And so that's not normal for a tiny country, tiny <laughs> country, to have a global leader at the helm. And uh, for all his flaws, and he has some significant flaws, um, people trust him. You're right, it is a tiny country, but we've been touring for the last week and we've done 20 of these. It seems so big here, Joel. <laughs> I mean, it does, it just feels that's so big. That's because you're not from Texas. <laughs> oh, that's true, <laughs> Illinois. Okay, so you get to talk about all these issues now on a weekly basis on television. Yeah. TBN, the station that we are on Wednesday nights, you're on Thursday nights, the Rosenberg Report. Uh, 15 months ago when we last talked, uh, this wasn't a thing. No. Um, and I, I've asked you offset, uh, did you realize how much time this is going to take? <laughs> you didn't, but we're thankful that you're doing this show because we're getting real-time information from Israel. You have amazing guests. So tell me about the Rosenberg Report and are you okay <laughs> taking all the extra time. Well, um, yeah, I have a few other things going on, right? I, I'm a novel writer. I'm writing a new novel right now. I've got a new novel coming out May 16th. Um, I also run two news websites, all Israel news and all Arab news. So, yeah, I, I, it's not like I needed an extra thing on my plate. And I told Matt Crouch first, no, but he's very persuasive. And um, I said, Matt, 
I've got a face for radio. Like, I, I question your judgment. I know you run the world's largest, you know, Christian television network, but hello. Anyway, but he, he said, look, we don't have anybody. I mean, first of all, he said that there's literally no other network in American history that's had a weekly news and analysis show from Israel. Yeah. I, thought, I, I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. And he said, and you're there, and yeah. you know the players, and you know evangelicals. I think this is a good combination. And my board basically said, I, I think Matt's right. Like, you could be traveling all over the world to explain this to people, which is what people invite me to go do. But maybe you should just do it. Maybe you should stay home, stay in Jerusalem, and talk to people from here as you're doing on the news site, uh, the websites, uh, All Israel News, and do it. And, and it's been exciting, and I've loved it. Got a great crew and a great team, and they make it uh, as easy as it can be for me. Okay. So, All Israel News, All Arab News. I get it. I love Thank it. You. I right. go through every day, every story that your staff and you send our way. It keeps me informed because your, your finger's on the pulse and you're not only going to tell us what's going on here in Israel, but also you're going to give us some analysis a little bit too, which is helpful. And what it mean, what's happening and why it matters. Yeah, right? so all, all Israel news, people can search for that. And I would definitely subscribe uh, have everyone subscribe it's to free. that. It's free. The email and it is daily emails are free. Yeah, and it is. So um, I've benefited from that, I'm and glad. I do appreciate uh, what you do with that. So many people ask me and have asked me for years, what do you read and whom do you trust? That's mm-hmm. the biggest. You know, in in the in the age of fake news, right? Then you think, well, if I care about Israel and I care about the region, where am I getting my information exactly. from that I can feel like okay, that that I can trust? Mm-hmm. And I, well, that's what we're trying to provide. So the, the media here in Israel, uh, Netanyahu says, it was basically his main opposition. It wasn't the political party against him, it was the liberal media, which reminds me of a lot of what we have in the United States. Yeah. So we, we, it is nice to get the news from people that I trust and that definitely has the worldview. So I agree with you on that. Now, you are an author. That's how we first met. I read your book, Enemies, Enemies and Allies. And you and, came to see me anyway, so that was nice. <laughs> no, uh, that was a great book, enjoyed it. And then I've been hearing about Joe Rosenberg for years in your fiction, and I just haven't taken the time. So before I interviewed you last time, I read the first book, I think 2001. One, yeah. uh, the uh, last well, it year. came out in 2002, but I wrote right. it in right. 2001. And yeah. The Last Jihad, and, and in that book, you had kind of uh, some ominous, you weren't predicting, but your, your fiction actually came true. So. Since that day, and since that interview 15 months ago, I have finished your fiction. That's amazing. And I'm wow. waiting for the, the next one, which okay. I've already pre-purchased. Thank you, wow. So tell me more about that. May your tribe increase. <laughs> yeah, well, it's taking my time, but here's what I like about it, Joel. It's fiction, and I don't usually read fiction, but every book I read, I'm learning something from the real world because your information is based on, this is like, it's almost like reading current events in an exciting way. So it's fiction, but to me it's like real world information and I'm gaining that. So what's next? Most people don't really want to be educated. I'm glad that you do and some people do. Most people want to be entertained. So the question is, can I create a high speed roller coaster ride that people are like, Wow, like the, the thrill, the adrenaline, the, you know, just... you're just, Jump out of a Gulf Stream in the yeah. middle of Russian winter. Yeah, exactly. I, I get it. With people it. shooting missiles at sure, you. Sure. Yeah, I, I need to grab you as a reader by the throat, pull you in, and, and earn it every single page where you're like, you just, all right, it's two in the morning, but I just, I got to get up in a few hours, but I just, just one more chapter, just one more chapter. And they're like Pringles, these chapters. You can't <laughs> eat just one. And if I do that, 
you're going to learn stuff and go on not only an emotional journey, but and, and an intellectual journey, but you're going to go on a spiritual journey exactly. in my books as well. Each book is different, but but I can only do that if I entertain you. And that's a totally different way of thinking, and it's, uh, yeah, it's challenging. But the next novel is The Libyan Diversion. It comes out May 16th, and the short version is uh, my main character, former Marine, former Secret Service agent, now he's with the CIA, and he's hunting the world's most dangerous terrorist, a guy named Abu Nakba, which is Arabic for father of catastrophe, okay? And he's been hunting him for several books, and now Abu Nakba has basically lured uh, Marcus Riker into ungoverned spaces in Libya as a diversion. And, and he's trying to get Marcus and the United States so focused on other things, phantoms, basically, diversions, while, he, while Abu Nakba sneaks terrorist cells and nuclear weapons into the United States to set into motion um, a mass casualty event a thousand times worse than 9-11. That's the premise of the Libyan diversion. And it actually comes from uh, a conversation I had with Mike Pompeo, former CIA director, former Secretary of State. About 18 months ago, I was doing an event at the Museum of the Bible in Washington. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, what keeps you up at night? We've talked about a lot of things, but is there anything else that freaks you out, Mike? And he goes, well, I said, Mr. Secretary, but, uh, and he said, ungoverned spaces in northern Mexico. Basically, the Mexican government has ceded the border. Mm -hmm. And you got, you know, four and a half million people poured over just in the Biden administration alone. Four and a half million people. And they keep, and we keep finding, American Border Patrol keeps catching people that are on the terror watch list. So if these are the people they have caught, whom have they not caught? And he said, basically, the Mexican government has given up. And now the Biden administration has given up you got narco-terrorists, drug cartels, human traffickers, horrible people running the southern side of that border. And, and Biden isn't running the northern side. So this is, I, and I was so freaked out by that. that I thought, dang, like that, that's a novel. Like what, yeah. play that one out. That's the Libyan diversion, May 16th. Not prophetic, correct? I hope not. Right. Oh my gosh, so, I've always well, said, pray, th that should be the, the subtitle, pray this never happens. Like, well, I, I, no, I don't want this. Well, let me, let me ask you a serious question about that. So it's fiction, but you have people, like you said, Rick Perry and um, Mike Pompeo, I guess, that, that have read, and other prominent people have read your book. Mike Pence, King Abdullah, well, King Abdullah Jordan, Abdullah, yeah. right over there, you're going to so, be Jordan. Yeah, so if they're reading these things and you've highlighted an, a, an area of concern, might that change history too? I hope. I don't know. I hope if, if, if Joe Biden would take one of these golfing trips that he seems to take every couple of days, right? He's taken like half his administration to go play golf. Remember? All right. Anyway, <laughs> you, you can only, there's only so much you can say, right? So if he would just take one of these trips and maybe not play golf and just read one of my novels, things could get better. He could be like, oh, I should, I should make a difference. I, you know, after 9-11, what did we all ask? How is that possible? How could people do that? Nobody's going to be asking that question when terrorists who have snuck in through Mexico with whatever type of ghastly weapon and start blowing up American cities and, 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 and killing thousands and thousands of people, people are like, that was so obvious. Right. I mean, Joel's an idiot and he wrote a novel. How is this, how did, how could the president of the United States just let four and a half million people walk in unchecked? You can't even go into the airport. 
unchecked. Why, why can you just walk into the country? I, it makes no sense. Um, I get a little exercise about it. But my way of, you know, I, yes, I could write an op-ed. I could go write a speech for somebody who's not going to win an election. You know, whatever. I, my way of being Paul Revere, in a sense, is to use novels. And I also heard that Canada is having more of these same problem, not Canada, but the border from Canada coming to the United States than ever before. So that's, we a, have, that's in the novel as well. That's oh, in the Libyan diversion. I just oh, I hope I, hope I didn't Mexico, spoil that. Right. No, but it's it's actually happening now. And Justin Trudeau, you're gonna you're gonna trust Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, to keep that border safe? No, that border should be calm because Canada was always such a good friend and ally. They weren't gonna let any bad guys into their country, so we didn't have to worry about people just walking in. You know, there are points along the, the, the U.S.-Canadian border where there aren't even guard booths. It's just a camera. You go up, you push a button, you say, hi, this is my passport. I'm coming in to go hunt or fish or whatever. And they're like, okay, have a nice day. That's it. Say you're a terrorist, you're not going to push the button, right? I mean, you're going to push a button. It's going to be a different button. Yeah. This, is, this is insane. Right. The, what country just lets people just walk in? Israel doesn't. We have terrorists trying to get in from every direction. We protect it. Are There's you, a wall. I'm, right over your shoulder is true. the wall. Why? Because in 2000, Palestinians strapped with suicide bombing guns just walked into our schools, walked onto our buses, walked into our cafes, and blew themselves and our Israeli people to smithereens. And we're like, you, no. And we decided, finally, what's the best way to slow it down? You build a wall. Mm-hmm. It's not racist. It's... It's, it's protecting your own people. Yeah, and we do have immigration policies in the United States. Obviously, we're not holding to them. Um, are you surprised that we haven't had another 9-11 yet in the United States? You know, we've, we've really been uh, protected, and I'm sure there's a lot behind the scenes that they have stopped, but it seems to me like, like the, with all the people that hate us, there should have been something major by now happening. But it could be the calm before the storm, too. That's the title of your show. I mean, you're in your ministry, In Grace. God's grace has allowed the CIA, the FBI, but it, to catch a lot of people, right? You mobilize the American people to keep their eyes open, and a lot of good things have happened. Uh, but it wasn't that people aren't trying. It's just that these things are getting caught. Um, so thank God. But... But I don't, you know, there's a point of no return, right? Uh, and you're talking about, you know, all right, I'll shift to hockey, right? You only have to get the, the puck in one time. Like, you know, the bad guys only have to get it right one time. The, the defense has to get it right every single day, every moment. So when you add four and a half million people that you have no idea who they are, just walking around in the country, your odds of having missed one or two or 10 or 50 go up, right? It was only 19 people. 19 people on 9-11 changed America forever. 19. In the world, yeah. So is it possible, mathematically, that 19 out of 4.5 million could have evil intent? Um, yes. Okay, so you mentioned grace. Uh, there's a lot to worry about. You've given me a lot more to worry about. Well, happy to help, you know. Yeah, so um, talk about grace for a second. Talk about um, the peace that we can have through Christ and how you found that, and we'll wrap it up with this. Just give, give us some hope, give us some, some peace here, uh, and talk about Jesus and what he means to you. You have come to the city of hope, okay? Jerusalem symbolizes, it doesn't even symbolize, it, Jerusalem is the epicenter of hope. This is where God decided, that's my city. That's my, my mountain. 
that's my son. That's the cross. That's the empty tomb. This is where I'm going to do it all. Anyone who needs hope in their life for eternal life, for peace in this world, for peace that passes under all understanding, for wisdom, for it all comes from Jerusalem. It all comes from Christ. And that's why Satan hates this place uh, because it's the epicenter of God's plan. You know, people, Satan hates Israel because God loves Israel. Satan wants to turn this city into a city of bloodshed because God calls it Jerusalem, the city of peace, right? Satan wants to destroy and desecrate the Temple Mount. Why? Because God wants it to be holy, right? Satan is the anti of everything that God is. And so everything that God has chosen and loves, Satan is against it. So this is the hope if we fixate on the Messiah that has come. And the reason all these bad things are happening in the world the, the pandemic, the invasions, uh, the earthquakes that just have taken out hundreds of thousands of souls uh, and destroyed millions of lives, uh, millions of homes in Turkey and Syria, and all the other bad things that are happening in the world. Why? It's not judgment yet, Jim. In my view, judgment's coming, but we're not there yet. What this is, is God keeping his word when he said in the Hebrew scriptures, I will shake all the nations, right? Habakkuk or Hosea. I will shake Israel among the nations, right? God is shaking the world right now. These are the birth pangs, right? You could use whichever analogy, shaking or you know, birth pang squeezing. Why? God is letting Satan do horrible things. God is sovereignly allowing that so that people will freak out. So they will let go of anything they thought was gonna bring them hope or security other than Christ, whatever religion, whatever finances, whatever health they had, whatever political ideology, none of it's gonna matter. And, and, and God in his mercy is shaking people, shaking the world physically, economically, politically, spiritually, so that we all give up anything we're holding on to other than Christ. And those of us that are holding on to Christ, that we're not just like, yeah, yeah I abide in Jesus. No, clinging. I know abiding in Christ, very biblical word, uh, John 15, but I find myself using the term clinging, that I can't just abide. Like, th that's for peaceful times. This, these are not peaceful times. This is the most stressful area, era, I would argue, you know, certainly since World War II, and I think we're going, it's gonna get worse. So we've got to cling to Christ and he's our only answer. And the sooner we get that and live that way, the better. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Good Joel. Good to see you, Jim. Bless you. I think you've got some preacher in you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. This world is a scary place. And we've heard a lot from Joel Rosenberg that might disturb you. Well, let me just tell you this. There is hope. There is peace. There is grace available. And so how can we be sure that God has forgiven our sins? How can we be sure that we belong to him? Let me explain this. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says that you and me have sin. We are sinners. We cannot save ourselves. This is God who's righteous and perfect. Our sin separates us from him. What are we gonna do? Jesus came and paid for our sin on a cross 
here in Jerusalem. He was buried, the third day he rose again. He paid for our sin on the cross. He's alive and he wants to save you. He wants to bring you peace and joy and fulfillment in your life. How can you be saved? He says, just believe in me. In other words, put your hand of faith in his hand. And once he has his hand on you, you will never, ever be taken out of his hand. That's the greatest news in the entire world. And I hope that you've put your faith in Jesus today.